right, so I'm in town. Welcome back to uh, the third episode of this podcast with Hannah Anderson and uh, obviously Pastor Brandon here. Excited to um, talk today about joy. Um, Hannah was Hannah. You emailed me over the weekend as you were listening to the sermon. Like, man, this really struck a chord, and I guess that should have come with a trigger warning because it triggered it, uh, something from your childhood with joy. It should have. I, I really um, enjoyed watching the service, um, being present from a distance with everyone and really enjoyed your message. But there was a point where I got really, really excited that we were going to sing rejoice in the Lord always. And immediately in my head, I started singing that old camp song. I don't know if you ever sang it. It's, it's like a round, like you split up in different groups saying rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Then the other group starts rejoice. And I was so excited. And then we didn't sing it, which is fine. The song we sang was beautiful and wonderful and very soulful. But I would like to put in a request that we can sing a camp song every so often. Well, Miles is listening to this podcast. I'm going to have to lean on him because unfortunately, I didn't grow up in camp culture. Um, I became a Christian as a teenager. I did go to a Christian school, so I am aware of the song. Uh, we sang it in chapel. We had like a forced chapel. I said forced chapel. We had a chapel service every every week. Sometimes twice a week, sometimes three times a week, and did you uh, have we to did dress up for chapel. We That's did. We actually, I was. It was a school with uniforms, and so uh, which was nice actually, because you just throw them on the floor and pick them back up in the morning. Um, that is, that is what one does. You don't. You don't. Have to, you <laughs> don't have to think about it. You are a teenage it. boy. But but it was not. I I struggled to really enter into the joy of the songs, um, and so. I'm, uh, I, I will definitely, Miles, if you're listening, please just duly noted that Hannah would like to sing this camp song and, and do I mean, even what? if just two or three people sing it with me, that'll be enough <laughs> sometime when I finally get to be with you all in person. Oh man. Well, so like it's really interesting. So this topic of joy, I think was something that what was one of those as I was preparing last week. Um, was one of those, oh, I don't think I realized that I'm not operating consistently from a place of joy. Um, it's not one of those things that I really, th- I mean, I have like a daily practice of just scripture meditation and prayer and trying to confess and repent of things. And I realized, oh, I actually need to repent of some, a certain amount of joylessness um, because even though I'm a father for children and there's a lot of joy, especially as my kids were younger, um, that, you know, I recognize, I don't think I'm operating consistently from that place. And, and so that's kind of what we were seeking to really talk about what we're going to talk about today is, you know, what does it look like to enter, enter into uh, the joy of knowing God, which is one of the essential characteristics of a Christian. The hallmarks of being a Christian is, is to, I I like the way that one author defines joy as just a, a, a good feeling in the soul that, um, this produced by the Holy spirit that kind of trains us to see the beauty, um, of God in the, in his word and in the world. And I really like that definition. That's a John Piper's definition. And, and so kind of just talking about what does it look like when I think of joy, I do just think of a child, you know, and I think of in a healthy situation, that sense of childlike wonder and awe. Um, I, I used to take my kids to, when we lived in South Florida, we lived next to an airport, and my boys, they love to sit outside the chain link fence and just watch planes take off. And I'll never forget, like it burned into my memory. It's just that, whoa, this is it, it's just that simplicity of watching a plane take off and feeling that in your body, like 
even just feeling the, the pressure from the, and it was just like, okay, do it again, do it again. And I, that's what I think of when I think of joy. And yeah, I think as adults, we struggle. Um, you know, Jesus says the kingdom is, you have to become a child. And, and I think we think it's childish to be joyful. Um, I don't know, like, as you think about that struggle for joy in your own life, um, it seems like in every season, there's an invitation to joy and a struggle with joy, but it looks different in every season. What, what kind of resonates with you? Yeah, I felt like a lot of what you were expressing um, found resonance with me, both the angst and the desire and a level of joylessness. And I particularly um, was caught by the focus on childhood because I remember my childhood being very free and very joyful. And somewhere, if I think of my current self and I think of, you know, like eight-year-old Hannah, they don't even look like the same people and that kind of responsiveness, um, that delight, and even taking delight in things that um, wouldn't necessarily seem delightful or seem to evoke joy. And so I hear you talking about taking your sons to see the planes. And we had a similar experience where we had a very um, fast move, um, kind of an unexpected, unwanted move. And we landed in northern Indiana in the winter, like it was uh, December. Um, and I was just so, um, you know, upset by just the, the fastness of having to relocate. And we landed in the, in the middle of town, weren't in the country anymore, we're in the middle of town. And we live about a um, hundred yards from a train track, right? And I'm just beside, like, this is this is done. This is the end. And um, we brought our kids to it and this train came rumbling through and my two-year-old, maybe he's three, he pointed at it and just started yelling, Thomas, 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 you know, like Thomas the train. He got to live near Thomas the train. And I felt like I could borrow some of his joy in that moment. Like I certainly did not have it but his kind of abundance and open-heartedness to see that he got to live less than a hundred yards from a train, like who could ask for more? Um, and, but I remember that kind of, there is an openness and an abandon and an abundance mm. of childishness um, or childlikeness. You, you mm. made that point that, that was mm. significant to me that, um, we're talking about being childlike, not childish. And I think mm -hmm. that's really important when we're talking about joy and despair, um, because there is a kind of naivete that we're, we're not, we're not trying to seek naivete, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, we want to be able to see the world for what it is to recognize that you have a train rumbling past your house three or four times a day, but also to delight um, and to rejoice in what the world and what God brings to you. Mm -hmm. And that requires an openness. Yeah. Like one author kind of describes this as like a, uh, I think it's Paul Ricoeur um, as a second naivete. Mm. It's, it's like on the other side of, um, you know, it's like you, you deconstruct or you get older and you get sophisticated. It's like, he said like a post sophistication, you know, and, and you're able to get on the other side of um what, what you now know to be a broken world and still see the good and still see God in that and to experience joy in it. And that's, you know, we're talking Sunday. It's not the opposite of joy is not sorrow. The opposite of joy is despair. It's a hopelessness. Um, and so as you get older, you, you just kind of, the world kind of trains you in this sort of 
it, in some ways it's a necessary developmental process of, of kind of outgrowing the naivete of your childhood and recognizing that not everything is, is a delight. Not everything is fun and happy, right? Um, because the world's a hard and difficult and in some ways evil place, but being able to arrive on the other side, that side of that and enter into a sort of childlike joy that says, yes, I see the despair, but that's not the ultimate word, word or the ultimate reality. I don't know if yeah. that's, you know. No, that resonates a great deal with me because when I think about the difference between eight-year-old Hannah and 42-year-old Hannah, I think about uh, the responsibilities I've had to take on, the suffering of the world that I've had to encounter, um, even trauma that you experience and how that just kind of begins to steal your joy. And even as a parent, like my kids know, mom is not the fun parent. Dad is the fun parent. <laughs> I'm the serious parent. I, I am playful in my own way, but I feel the responsibility of adulthood so much that it can kind of rob me of the joy and the fun that should be within our work, even if it's the work of parenting or the work of, you know, providing or, or doing whatever God has called us to do. And, and that really came in stark contrast for me about two years ago. Um, I had been invited to speak at a conference in England. Um, this was part of a network. I don't know if folks know Andrew Wilson's work, um, kind of a reform charismatic space. And he and I were speaking at this conference um, and we had taken our family over. And for me, this was work, right? I was in a place of work. I was there to do a job and I was very focused on being responsible and being an adult and proving my worth for these people who had invested in me. And they had a time of prayer um, before the service and we all kind of huddled up and they were praying over us. And one person just stopped and said, I have like a word or I feel like I need to offer this kind of vision. I see a young girl running through a field of flowers with freedom and joy in her work. And I want us to pray that that's what Hannah will experience in this moment in her work, in doing this and ministering to us. And I just about lost it, oh, like just falling in tears because that's what I longed for. And I didn't know how to get to, I didn't mm. know how to work with that same kind of joy and abandon mm. and still be serious in all of my responsibilities. Oh, that feels vulnerable. Mm. <laughs> that feels, I mean, and that's the cool thing about the, I think the spirit's work, the prophetic gifts is he identifies those things in ways that we never expect and brings them to our attention. And I thought it was interesting, that article that I was quoting from um, the, the therapist who was talking to millennials. Um, one of the things she said um, when she does when she does therapy is, you know, one of the first things she suggests to people trying to recapture a sense of joy and working through their kind of their burnout or depression is, can you think back to when you were a child? What brought you joy? And I just thought that was such a profound thing because we, I remember a counselor that I was working with asked me the same question, like, what? What, what was the six-year-old version of you like? What was the 10-year-old version of you like? And I literally hadn't thought about it in decades. And I, and I was like, that guy liked to read fiction. You know, he liked to do things that um, when I went to seminary, it's like that stuff got kind of like discipled out of me, you know, in some ways formed out of me. But I don't know, that can be a profound question. When you think about, I know you've written on this and you've talked about this quite a bit. Um, when you think about some of the ways that we're 
formed and shaped out of joy, right? Because the older you get, I think the more that joy can get in the rearview mirror and, and we get serious, we get sober with our work and we get busy. Um, what, what are some of the cultural hurdles that you see in your own life or you've observed um, in your writing um, to cultivating joy? And, you know, whether that's outside the church or inside the church or, or both. Um, yeah. What are, what are, what do you see as some of those basic obstacles? Well, I do think, you know, what we've talked about, just aging, you know, going through life, having your kind of expectations disappointed, what you, what you thought would happen doesn't happen, or you're blindsided by things you could never have seen coming. I think there's just a natural kind of dealing with the suffering of the world, moving from childhood to adulthood. So, so I want to say, even as we talk about recovering this kind of childlikeness, some of this is just natural to the aging process. Mm -hmm. Like it's going to happen and you have to be aware of it. Um, But I do think, you know, culturally, one of the things I find most ironic is if you're online, you see this kind of hashtag blessed life, right? So, so there's this projection of joy. There's this projection of beauty and goodness and abundance abundance. And we have these really curated images in front of us and all these happy, shiny people. And what's ironic to me is the more I watch those, the less happy I am in my own life, the Mm. less joy I actually experience with my people in my place. Um, And I don't even know if it's jealousy or discontentment. It's just that that is shaping my expectations. Mm. It's shaping what life should look like or how I should be experiencing joy. And we all know they're curated. We all know they're staged to a certain degree, but that's not what our brain and emotions remember. Mm. Um, We just see it and then come back to our real lives and look at them and they don't look anything like that. Mm. Either we try really, really hard to make them look like that. um, Or we just kind of become very disillusioned and, and don't move toward joy that we have um, because we're trying to achieve the joy that someone else seems to be projecting out into the world. Mm. So growing older, this is, this is somewhat of a developmental, a human developmental uh, process, a psychological process of growing older. Um, there's the kind of digital social media space that um, in a sense creates kind of an, an ideal um, state that we're kind of um, probably not consciously, but unconsciously measuring ourselves against, or at least is operating someone in the frame of our um, subconscious in terms of what happiness and what joy should look like. And then we kind of look at our real lives and it doesn't look anything like right, that. Right. Because my kids don't look like kids. <laughs> <laughs> like, so yeah. we are still working with basic grooming habits, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is what life with family is like. Like, driving to school, did you brush your teeth? And three out of three didn't. And, you know, it's just like, that's not, and and it can make us very easily disaffected Mm. with the work we're doing and whether we're achieving things. I think too, and you you mentioned this in, in your sermon and it made so much sense to me that we kind of live in a culture that rewards disaffection. Mm. and constant frustration and like with all the injustices in the world with all the suffering in the world how dare you be happy Mm. (laughs) like how dare you have joy do you not know of the brokenness of the world and i do think it's much 
I think you'll get more reward from people online for cynicism and disaffection and frustration than you might get for saying, look, this joyful thing happened, you know, or pointing to joy. Um, and that doesn't mean we're not working against the brokenness or the suffering, but that, as you said, you know, you have to hold both and you have to have um, the joy be motivating and overwhelming the sorrow, mm. you know, um, mm. so that both are happening, but that you have this stability even within the brokenness. Yes. Yes, I think so. And so you, in a sense, you, you kind of, uh, it, you start to settle. Maybe that's the heart of despair. You settle for mediocrity, you settle for, and, and even in some ways, I think I notice in our culture, we mock people who have, who seem to have joy as like, oh, that can't be real or, oh, that's sweet. You know, like that they would be joyful. They must not have really experienced the suffering I have or what seen what I've seen. I was walking with a guy Sunday afternoon and we were just kind of talking about this, just your, your, your horizons of possibility just narrow because there's just, you just feel all of this anger, all of this sadness, all this confusion. And so you start to look at other people and even kind of get sarcastic or cynical towards even um, little pieces of joy that others might be experiencing. You automatically assume that um, it's gotta be fake. It's gotta be somehow manufactured. And, and maybe that's one of the signals that you're, you're in that space of despair is that you, you begin to um, not even notice how much you are kind of implicitly and internally, not only denying yourself joy, but denying others joy. Right. If I can't be happy, no one's going to be happy. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, that, and there's like, yeah, maybe envy, you know, there's, there's things like that that come along with this. Um when you, when you look at, well, I know you've written on this and one of your books, all that's good. You, you even talked about begin, beginning to cultivate habits of discerning the good. Can you talk a little bit about how that, um, how that right. came about and kind of what you learned through writing that and kind of reflecting on that. And, and maybe then even as we look outward to the natural world and we think about turning of days, you know, is an attempt to find joy in the despair and the brokenness of the natural world. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I tell folks that if you read my writing, you know what's going on in my head. Like you can see what I'm struggling with. Like I don't write books like Humble Roots because I'm a humble person who doesn't, you know, have anxiety. I'm like a very anxious person. And so I had to write my way out of it. And um, one book, All That's Good, The Lost Art of Discernment, was writing my way out of a history and a background um, a religious background that had a very defensive posture toward the world, that um, it saw a threat around every corner. It was only ever serious. It was at war with the world. And if we were lucky, we might survive this life and be able to go to heaven where we're not sure what it's like, um, but we will enjoy it. Gosh, darn it. <laughs> So I came from that background within a religious space. So not only do you mm -hmm. have all of these cultural challenges outside the church, within the church, um, there can be kind of a, a disposition that so spiritualizes joy that it becomes something that you can't really experience. You just have to believe in that it's a possibility. Um, and so for me, the process of uh, writing All That's Good, which was basically a call from Philippians 4, 8, and 9, um, where Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, you know, 
think on these things. And that's not too far from the same passage that says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So there's kind of this continuity of, yeah, there's a lot to be anxious about in the world. The verses right prior to that say, be anxious for nothing, but cast your cares um, on God. And then he says, think this way, put your mind, focus your attention on whatever is true, good, beautiful, lovely, and then rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And so for me, that was a habit I had to learn. I had to move from a disposition of staying away from danger and always seeing everything mm. as a threat and a risk and say, no, this, this world is good and beautiful. It contains beauty um, and goodness that God has put into it. And it's my job to go find it and to mm. live in that goodness. Um, and so this was just a guide to how to get there um, for myself, for my family, trying to create a culture within our home that would prioritize joy and abundance, um, even in the midst of the brokenness. Again, not diminishing that there is sorrow and suffering, but that goodness still exists and joy still exists. Mm. So some of this is almost like how you see the world, you know, um, like how you approach reality and being aware that there, there are kind of two postures, one of kind of fear and anxiety, um, and one of joy, uh, gladness, anticipation. Yeah. I think is the word that I think of when I think of joy, it's anticipating that the, the resurrection is true, you know, but it, it sounds like what you're saying is there's a, there's a discovery process to that, you know, that we have to go and search it out and find it and pursue it. Um, rather than just expecting that, um, even in the church, that that's going to be the default. It, it doesn't seem like in many places that is the default, whether you're talking about kind of that old school, maybe fundamentalism that, you know, kind of birthed out of the Cold War, you know, that kind of saw everybody as, as a communist threat. Um, and that are many iterations of that over the 20th century, or even, I think, even in a more progressive space now, um, where there's just so much anger and outrage that, you know, we just, we only see the brokenness. We only see the injustice. So I, what I hear you saying is that the discernment is, is this process of discovering almost two horizons, like a horizon of fear and anxiety and despair, or looking to another horizon and saying, no, there's actually the anticipation of good things. Right. And I think it's different than being an optimist or a pessimist, right? It, it's totally different than seeing the glass half full, half empty. It's more about um, that key work of hope. Do you have hope in this greater thing that you believe has overcome the brokenness? And so joy originates, um, Christian joy originates in a confidence um, that the resurrection is true and that we we are rejoicing in hope, as Paul puts it in Romans 12, where we are placing our um, ultimate trust in something that's already happened and we believe is in process even now, redeeming and restoring the world, redeeming and restoring us, and that one day um, we will be resurrected ourselves. And that's the kind of hope that that elicits joy. And I was thinking about this. Um, there's an essay in Turning of Days that really captured this kind of struggle for me. Um, and I, I talk about watching fruit trees bloom too early in spring. Like if you have a warm set of days long enough, the trees will think spring has come and they'll start to bloom. They'll put out buds. They'll start to leaf out. And the danger is these blossoms carry the entire harvest in them from the beginning. 
And if you get a late frost, if you have a cold snap, you will lose your entire harvest. You, you will not have fruit that year because the blossoms will have frozen. So there's this kind of wariness of watching a good, beautiful thing come about a little early and you can't trust it and you can't hope in it. Um, and I wanted just to read a, a section of that from the book because I feel like this is my fundamental um, struggle for joy. So before you read this, just know this is not hypothetical. This is hitting a little too close to home. We are getting a cold snap. It is supposed to snow in Indianapolis on Wednesday, tomorrow. And, and the blossoms are out. Yes. So Emily and I were on a walk yesterday and we're like, oh my gosh, we read that essay from you. And we're like, this is actually... <laughs> gonna happen here and we're and you're waiting and you yes. don't know and and the verse that kind of inspired this was proverbs um 13 12 that says hope deferred mm. makes the heart sick and that's that despair right like you had this hope and it doesn't come about but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life mm. so i just want to read just a portion of this so you watch the trees with a wary eye while other people watch them with delight to them, early buds are a sign of good things to come, of winter's demise and spring's ascendancy. To them, these buds mean life and fruitfulness, festivals and celebrations. They're caught in the heady romance of it all, but they've never had their heart broken by a peach blossom encased in ice. They've never seen an Alberta clipper descend like a wolf on the fold. Let them have their joy. You've got your anxiety because you know you know that buds do not mean blooms any more than blooms mean fruit, any more than fruit means harvest. Instead, like anyone with your experience, you pace yourself, curb your enthusiasm, and keep desire in check. How does one live in this place between longing and fulfillment? How do you dare to hope when the world is so harsh and cares nothing for your good work? How can you sustain hope in the face of it all, how can you not be chilled until your own heart freezes slowly over? I wonder for myself, because it's not just buds and blooms. It's the ache of children and our dreams for them. It's the burden of communities and our work invested in them. It's the longing for righteousness and praise to flower in all nations and the obvious fact that they don't. And if I'm honest, it's far too easy to become a cynic in the name of realism too easy to give up hope because this is the way it is and what will be will be. And the sooner you make peace with reality, the better. But then I think if I were actually a realist, I would acknowledge that sometimes our justified fears don't materialize. If I was actually a realist, I'd know that some years the blooms come and the killing frost doesn't. I'd know that some nights you go to sleep on the certain knowledge that all is lost only to awaken to trees that make it safely through. And we'd have to confess that some days hope brings forth fruit as a tree of life and the harvest is plentiful. So that is not just my struggle with watching the buds, but just with the Christian life and this struggle between knowing what the world can bring, but also having the hope in Christ and in God that we're not left alone in the brokenness and there is joy and there is hope that is possible. Yeah, and it seems like there's, you know, just thinking about practically what this looks like to fight for joy. I think that's 
one of the things I appreciate about the Hebrews 12 passage is that, you know, Jesus kind of intentionally sets joy in front of him. And there's this cloud of witnesses, you know, past and I think present as well. Um, and so this is like our community calling. It's a vocation it's a, in a sense for us to help each other fight for joy mm-hmm. and, and like Jesus to, to set joy in front of us, the joy and the delight of our relationship with God. And, and, and I think also we, we kind of personalize joy or make, look at the vertical aspect of it with God, but also we're to find joy in our community. We're to find joy in the natural world. I mean, there's all kinds of imitations there, but specifically within the community of faith, um, it seems like there's just, there's, a, there's a fight because we tend to like kind of edit joy out of the story when we remember, uh, and we look at our relationships with others. It's, it's easy to kind of nurse and to rehearse um, our grievances and our wounds and our uh, struggles rather than to, as you, I think you're saying there, like remembering that those fears don't come true all the time, that those anxieties are not always real and that there are, there are lots of joyful things happening as well within our communities that we can pay attention to. And so it's almost like Kurt Thompson always says, pay attention to what you're paying attention to. And is that some of what I hear you saying, even as we think about our relationships and we think about our past experiences is like, what are, what are we paying attention to? What are we attending to? It is for sure. And I think to your point about joy within community, it's a willingness to be open to joy. Um, Even if you are not experiencing it or um, capable of even giving attention to the things that you should be giving attention to. God is entrusting joy to other people around you. Mm-hmm. And there, there is a sense of, you just have to be willing to even be made joyful. Like even if you can borrow someone else's joy when you can't produce it, but if we close ourselves off and say, no, I'm only safe with my cynicism, I'm only safe mm-hmm. with my despair. Um, I, I find that too, where, with children, for example, as we've talked about, there is an irritating quality when we're unhappy, if they're happy, like there's a sense of, wait, I'm unhappy. Everyone needs to be unhappy. But there's also the reverse of that, that we can borrow joy from other people. And I think, again, as we've said this whole time, we're not to cultivate the fruit of the spirit in isolation. This is not something that we just work on our own. We borrow from each other and to extend the natural world metaphor just a little too far, probably. Um, I think about how an orchard, um, those blossoms pollinate within each other. They're borrowing pollen from one bloom to the next, to the next, to produce the fruit. And so one bud by itself cannot produce fruit. It has to cross pollinate with the entire um, orchard. And I think that's just a beautiful vision too of even letting our joy cross pollinate. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's so good. I love the idea of borrowing, borrowing joy um, because uh, cynicism kind of has a, it's a cancer, you know, it it metastasizes and we kind of implicitly absorb that, you know, from the world around us. Um, And then unfortunately from our families uh, of origin, um, you know, uh, certainly from our workplaces, um, our neighborhoods, there's plenty of cynicism to go around in the name of realism, but being a community that intentionally cultivates joy, fighting for joy together, borrowing joy from one another and not questioning that as somehow inauthentic, you know, but realizing as C.S. Lewis says, you know, like 
sometimes you just have to practice joy and and hope and the feelings follow, you know? And so it's in that, that's the act of faith. Um, I think, and I, I want to encourage too. just, I think in the season, you know, one of the things in reading, uh, scripture again this last week in study and was just seeing the intentionality of the old testament community in cultivating joy through the the rhythms of feasting you know they had the passover feast they had the feast of uh, the festival booths these kinds of things you can read about that in deuteronomy 16 and in nehemiah 8 even after they come back from exile one of the things that they were intentional to do was to feast and to say we we have to kind of embody the joy of the lord being our strength in and that's not just for uh, a certain segment. It's for everybody. It's for the widow, for the orphan, for the the foreigner, for um, you know our servants. I mean, employees, everybody. We, we've got to, as a community, create these opportunities to stop and to open up our lives and our homes and and embrace joy. And um, and so I think, man, what a great season for us as we're coming out of COVID. Many of us are getting vaccinated, feel more comfortable being out, um, and we must feast. We must come out of this season of fasting in a sense, uh, and in some somewhat of a cynicism and despair of COVID and, and feast together and begin to open up our homes and open up our lives and, um, reclaim and recover the joy that God has for us. And so, um, well, Hey, thank you, Hannah, for this conversation. I, I think, uh, this is so just pertinent for, for me in this season of life. I'm in sounds like for you as well. And I know for many listening, I just got a text message while we were on this podcast from a member who was like, thank you. Um, I woke up this morning, just fighting for joy. And I think so for so many of us, that is, that is the real struggle of the season that we're in. And so, um, so yeah, we look forward to, uh, to talking about this week or me dealing with patience. So we'll come back uh, next week and talk about patience. Would you just close this maybe with a quick prayer hand as we pray over this again, this is something that more than anything else is we, we see that we, we can't produce it. The, only the spirit can bear this fruit in our lives. And so maybe just close this with a prayer. Heavenly father, we long to have the heart of joy that you have. Um, the scripture says you rejoice over us and yet um, we can't even cultivate this joy within ourselves. So I pray this week, Lord, that um, you would open us up to the joy of your spirit, that we would um, be able to be conduits of joy for others, that we would be able to point our eyes to your goodness, um, that even in the sorrows, um, even in the sufferings, that your hope um, that the resurrection and that the joy of life with you would overwhelm and overcome us in these moments. And we ask this all in your son's name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.